Welcome to another episode of Life Across Borders, a World Relief miniseries. In this episode, World Relief's Ginny Yang and Matthew Sorens discuss what it will take to rebuild the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program, how World Relief is preparing, and what you can do to help. On Friday, April 16th, the Biden administration announced that it would be keeping the historically low refugee ceiling set by the Trump administration for the fiscal year 2021. Throughout his campaign, President Biden committed to raising the ceiling to 125,000, a number that is reflective of the U.S.'s historic refugee admissions ceiling. And in February, he promised to make a down payment on that goal by raising the ceiling to 62,500 within this fiscal year. After an outpouring of opposition from faith leaders and advocates like World Relief, President Biden reversed course on April 16th, saying he would set a new refugee ceiling on May 15th. And we are holding him to his promise of reaching 62,500 in this fiscal year. In this conversation, recorded in January, Matt and Jenny share their hopes for a higher refugee ceiling and what the process for rebuilding the program would look like. Listen in. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt Sorens. I'm the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. And I am here with my friend and colleague, Jenny Yang, who is our Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Policy. Uh, we're really excited to talk to you about what it means to rebuild the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. As many of you have heard, President-elect Biden has committed to raising the, the ceiling for refugee admissions to 125,000 which is a huge shift from the last several years. So Jenny, before we dive into the details, I'd love to hear your reaction to that number. What are you thinking? What are you feeling as you hear about 125,000 as a refugee ceiling and as we head into a new year with this new possibility? Yeah, well, I think it's a really exciting um, thought to to really believe that we can have a ceiling set for 125,000 um, because uh, we know a lot of refugees who have been waiting many, many years to be reunited with their loved ones in the US and who are in really dire circumstances overseas. And I think it really is an opportunity for the US to restore its, its traditional humanitarian leadership in the world because there really is no other country that has a capacity and the ability to resettle refugees like the United States is really ingrained in our, our policies and our laws where Congress in 1980 has set um, the refugee emissions program and really allowed the president to determine that number based on political considerations. And the fact that we right now are facing the world's worst refugee crisis since World War II, where an estimated 80 million people have been forcibly displaced, and of that um, around 30 million are refugees, the U.S. really has a moral responsibility, I think, to uh, resettle a larger number of refugees than we have traditionally, or in the past several years, I should say. And so I think the the, um, the potential for the U.S. to resettle 125,000 refugees is really in line with our tradition of having done so at times of significant political conflict around the world. Um, and I think it really is something that a lot of churches and volunteers are looking forward to partnering with us on because a lot of uh, folks that we know in communities across the United States are really eager and willing to uh, want to continue to build friendships with refugees that, that are coming in. Yeah, that's so fantastic. And I know we've seen in the community where I live uh, a lot of churches that are really eager to start that, that rebuilding process. Uh, but I want to I stop on some of the legal questions here because I, I know this is all super complicated. There are immigration 
policies that require congressional action. And there are others that the president can do him or herself more unilaterally. So I think you kind of alluded to this, but what is the, the president's authority in terms of the refugee ceiling? So as a new president comes in, is this something he can say a number, but actually it's up to Congress if that's going to happen or not, or what's, how, what's the authority here? Yeah, so both parties have a role, both the president and Congress, because uh, the president has the authority to determine the number. He's He um, is the one who basically signs on the dotted line the number that's recommended by the Secretary of State. And so the Secretary of State um, with his team at the State Department normally goes through the, a process by which they study what's happening around the world. And then they actually write uh, what's called a report to Congress in which they stipulate to, to congressional leaders um, these are the areas around the world in which we're seeing large refugee flows and the U.S. should resettle these people groups from these areas. And then they propose a number, at which point um, Congress then weighs in because Congress, after receiving the report, um, the relevant members of the Judiciary Committee then are supposed to meet with the Secretary of State to discuss the report. Um, and after these consultations, uh, then the the president gets that final number, and then he is supposed to sign on that dotted line. And so the 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 refugee emissions ceiling um, that the president signs that it's called a presidential determination of PD. Um, but um, every uh, Congress has a role to play, the Secretary of State has a role to play, and the president ultimately has a role to play. Um, but it's important to note that Congress does have significant authority because not only do they consult with the Secretary of State, um, but they also are the ones um, uh, with appropriations authority, which means that they have the ability to fund the U.S. Refugee Missions Program as well as fund refugee assistance overseas for the majority of refugees who will not be resettled but remain in refugee camps or urban settings around the world. And it's important to note what role each um, part of government plays because I think for a lot of us as we weigh like what can we do to help how can we provide support for even setting this young at 125,000 that everyone should weigh in both with the your member of congress as well as the president because I think both will, will and should be responsive to people who are weighing in supporting a higher refugee ceiling for for this fiscal year yeah that's really helpful so that, that congressional consultation process, if my memory is correct, usually happens right around, uh, right before the beginning of the federal fiscal year in October. Obviously it's not October. Um, how, is there a precedent for an incoming president changing that ceiling for mid fiscal year? Is that something that can happen? Yes, so there have been times in history when the, the ceiling had been changed. So President Clinton, did change the refugee ceiling um, during his term um, with a lot of the Kosovo refugees that were coming in. He increased the ceiling. Um, and um, so it's not unprecedented for uh, the, the president to change the ceiling. And he has the full legal authority to do so. But it would mean that uh, the current ceiling, which is at 15,000 uh, for this fiscal year, the president would have to write a new presidential determination. Uh, there would probably also need to be necessary consultations with Congress to let them know that this is what he's anticipating. Um, and then after that, there would have to be um, a subsequent report to Congress, which would then detail how the program is supposed to work. And so I think the challenge has been not just that the refugee ceiling for this year has been set at 15,000, uh, but the fact that with the 15,000 low ceiling, the program was really changed significantly in the, over the past several years. 
where you have to meet very specific narrow criteria in order to qualify. And a lot of the refugees we traditionally resettled, Congolese, Syrians, and Iraqis, actually many of them can no longer come through the program because of these very narrow specifications. So I think in addition to the higher ceiling of 125,000, we also need a rewriting of the program uh, so that the State Department can then operate the program with it based on vulnerability versus um, these categories. And so the US playing a role in accepting and resettling the world's most vulnerable refugees um, is a criteria that we wanna maintain in the program. Um, and that's something that would need to change uh, with a new PD as well. And that's something that the, the executive branch, the president, the State Department have the authority to do. I mean, the consulting with Congress, but it is within the president's authority. Yes, it is fully within the president's authority. And that is something that we saw happen even under President Trump is he also changed uh, the PD his first year in office um, in 2017. He changed the, the, the refugee ceiling um, to, I believe, 45,000. And so I think any president, because of the, they have the, the authority, can write an executive order and then change the, the refugee ceiling. Uh, President-elect Biden did commit to changing it to 125,000. And so I think you know, we're hoping that he will follow through with that commitment, which would be a significant increase from the 15,000 that is um, the current refugee ceiling right now. Yeah, I'm not a mathematician, but that's many times over 15,000. Can you give us a sense, like, in terms of historical perspective, 15,000, 125,000, is, is 125,000 a historic high for the U.S. refugee program, or where does that fit in sort of in the histo history? Yeah, so 125 would be the highest refugee ceiling since the late 1990s. Um, and so uh, so it would be a significantly high number, but I think given the, the humanitarian crises we're facing right now with a record number of those displaced, it's not unusual to set a, a number that high. Um, and I would say that when you look at the history of the program, which started formally in 1980 with the passage of the Refugee Act, um, there have been really high refugee ceilings that were set. So for example, in 1980, really at the start of the refugee program, the ceiling was set at 231,700. Um, so that was really high. And then the year after that, it was set at 217,000. Um, and then the year after that, 140,000. So, so when you look at what was happening in the early 1980s, there was this huge um, um, outflow of refugees coming from Vietnam. And so the ceiling was set that high because the U.S. at that time felt an obligation to resettle a large number of Vietnamese refugees. And so that's why the ceiling was set that high. Um, but then you also see in 1993 that the ceiling was set at 142,000 as well. So these were several years in which the ceiling was set above 125,000. And so I think the U.S. setting the ceiling for 125,000 for 2021 uh, would be really a step in the right direction given everything that's happening around the world. Um, but obviously it would take a lot of work for us to really rebuild back the program. Um, but it does set a goal that I think is um, not only achievable, but it, it really is a right moral direction for a country in recognizing that in um, in recognizing that given what's happening around the world, that we do have an obligation to respond accordingly. Can you talk about what the process is for like when when do the number of refugees arriving in various communities in the United States? actually begin to increase? And what are the steps that need to happen before that is possible? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so I, I, again, I think the setting of the refugee ceiling is really this first step in the right direction. So you have to set the ceiling saying, this is gonna be our goal for this year, but it will take commitment and resources 
for the for agencies like World Relief in partnership with the State Department and others and volunteers and networks um, with churches to really build back the program because over the past several years, World Relief closed several offices and communities that had longstanding relationships with the refugee community um, and that were willing and wanting to resettle more refugees. And so um, not only in the offices that we currently have, but we need to rehire more staff, um, make sure that they're trained um, and can are ready, ready and willing to receive a larger number of refugees. But we would also have to consider whether or not there are certain cities across the US that are wanting to have refugees come in uh, in partnership with World Relief and what it would look like for World Relief to reopen some offices, either that we had closed or are in newer communities where we haven't had an office before. And so I think it is gonna take a lot of effort from World Relief and other organizations with the State Department to identify, well, what are the core needs that we have and how can we get the appropriate resources to make sure that we're, we have the right staff and networks available and resources to really serve the refugees well. And so I don't think that in the first year, even with the refugee ceiling set at 125,000, that we're gonna see that number. I think it will take us slowly uh, rebuilding the program um, on the domestic side, but also when you look at overseas processing, a lot of the, uh, what we call circuit rides where Homeland Security officers that are trained to interview refugees, um, that a lot of that has actually stopped right now. And so we would need to reschedule the circuit rides um, process all the cases. And a lot of that takes months, if not years. And so when you look at the pipeline right now, you have a lot of refugees that are waiting, but then we need to restart the processes, a lot of them over again. And then that's going to take time as well. So both on the overseas processing front, as well as on the domestic infrastructure resettlement front, um, on both those sides, we, uh, we need to do a lot of um, restarting and rebuilding to make sure that we can be in a place where we can reach the 125,000. Yeah, that's really helpful to lay out all those different pieces that need to come into place. Um, on, on the idea of rebuilding infrastructure for resettlement here in the United States, could you talk to some of the factors that World Relief or, or other resettlement agencies, but specifically for World Relief, uh, you know, what factors are we considering as we look at potential new locations to begin or to resume refugee resettlement where it hasn't been happening the last few years? Yeah, well, we are in uh, 17 office locations across the United States. A lot of them have been there for many, many years. Um, but as we look to rebuild in the United States, I think one of the key questions we're asking is, not only is there affordable housing, as well as a good job market for refugees to be placed in good employment opportunities, um, but whether or not there's a strong church community that can actually partner with us in, in resettling refugees. And so a lot of the things we're doing and the exercise that we are undergo at World Relief is, are there several churches, three or four even, uh, who have been wanting World Relief to open an office there? And can they work and partner with us to set up good neighbor teams, which are teams um, of volunteers that help refugees when they first arrive with their apartment and, and finding jobs and learning English and, and just befriending the refugees in general when they, when they first get here. Um, so these are all the questions that we ask. I think we would really only open an office in an area in which we felt like there was strong community support um, in which there is our churches and pastors we're working with who are willing to um, welcome these refugees as well as strong employer relationships and schools and housing um, that would really be willing to welcome a lot of these refugee communities as well. And so I think in, I, in our experience at World Relief, we found that in, in most communities we've worked in, if not all of them, there has been very strong community support. 
Um, and it really requires ongoing education and mobilization. And, and we really strongly believe that any time a volunteer has worked directly with a refugee has been absolutely transformative for that volunteer and for the refugee too in a lot of cases. But it's really these life-changing relationships that we want to continue to have in our work. And because we know that the impact um, these relationships can have on churches and ministry in general. So, so those are the things that we will look for as we seek to reopen some offices in, in key communities. Yeah. So of course the wild card in everything in the last year and is COVID-19 and the public health dynamics. Um, how does that play in both to resettlement but also to overseas processing? And is that, how does COVID-19 affect the possibility of resuming refugee resettlement at a historically normal level? Yeah, so this was a, a huge consideration. Just in 2020, the, the refugee program was uh, suspended except for in emergency cases pretty much from April until uh, July. Um, and then it was late summer that we resumed the program with specific COVID precautions in place. So for any refugee that's arriving um, or even the, in the processing, they were checked for medical conditions. Um, they would actually have to quarantine once they got to the United States. Um, and But mind you, I think it's important to remember that in some of the places where these refugees are coming from, COVID is not as rampant as it is in the United States. Um, but they have, but once the, the program resumed at the late, in late summer of 2020, um, all refugees now actually have to undergo COVID testing overseas before they get to the United States. Um, and so, um, and then there's a 72 hour period after that test, um, and then they're actually able to travel to the United States. And so I think a lot of the public health precautions and concerns that we would have for anybody um, is certainly applicable when we talk about refugee processing, but I think our government is taking all the necessary steps to make sure that refugees um, are COVID-free um, and symptom-free when they actually arrive to the United States. And then even after they arrive with that cautionary measure, they still have to quarantine once they get here. And so it is a pretty safe process. Um, and I think it'll continue to be safe as we expect to see more refugees coming in in the near future. And obviously, hopefully as we see the refugee program rebuild, hopefully that will coincide with a decline of, of COVID-19 being our everyday reality that we all need to think about all the time. Mm -hmm. um, could you speak, Jenny, to you know, for, for Christians who care about refugees, who want to ensure that the U.S. really does return to a higher level of refugee resettlement, how do we use our voices to hold our government accountable to that? What can we practically do? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, it's important to be just informed about what's going on. I think the fact that you're listening now to this audio, the fact that you can, you're perhaps following World Relief on social media channels and subscribe to our newsletter, those are all important steps to continue to be aware of what's going on. Because I think in the day-to-day, -day, sometimes there are significant changes to the program that it's important to be aware of in general. Um, but I also think it's important to engage our local communities in being aware of, of refugees and what's happening around the world because as we see a significant ramp up in the program it's more likely that you will start to see more refugees coming into your local communities and i think the main question is how will my church engage or how will my community engage and can my church be a welcoming community for refugees that are coming in and that requires ongoing conversations with your uh, team of volunteers at your church even conversations with your local pastor to talk with him or her about what the church can do to offer tangible welcome to those who are coming in. And so we've seen a lot of churches 
uh, reach out to our local offices to set up good neighbor teams to make sure that volunteers are ready and trained um, to receive refugees at the airport. But a lot of that has also meant having uh, even sometimes tough conversations with the church about what is a theological positioning on refugees. And we've worked with a lot of pastors who have sometimes preached about migration from the pulpit, not necessarily as a political issue, but as a theological issue. And at World Relief, we have resources to help church leaders um, be able to do that. We've also helped churches do small group curriculums um, that uh, you and I have co-authored the book, Welcome the Stranger. We have a learning guide associated with that. Um, the Evangelical Immigration Table has the I Was a Stranger bookmark challenge where people can read through 40 verses of scripture related to immigration in the Bible in a bookmark um, and have that guide people's response theologically as well. So again, there's a lot of resources um, that I think can help people build the biblical framework necessary to engage on topics related to migration. But I would say the last thing, in addition to being informed and, and engaging a local church theologically, um, is really to engage in advocacy. And advocacy basically means um, to speak up uh, with those who, who oftentimes are considered voiceless. And for us at World Relief, that has meant um, uh, equipping you all to be able to contact your members of Congress. And so if you actually go to worldrelief.org slash advocate, you can actually directly reach your member of Congress through emails or through telephone calls. And then once you do that, it can actually formally register your thoughts with your member of Congress. And especially in the beginning of a new president's term, it is critically important for your member of Congress to really know what you care about. Because when we don't speak up, there is a vacuum of, of values that I think need to inform our public conversations. And our members of Congress are really looking to you to know what they should prioritize. And if you don't say anything at all, then they oftentimes will look at other things or not even know that refugees are coming into the local community. So speaking up is, is critically important because it helps not just shape public narrative, but public policy. Uh, and that will really set the agenda for whether or not we have a robust refugee resettlement program and whether or not vulnerable people around the world can get the protection and assistance that they need. So good. I think it's so important that people like now is the time to do that advocacy so that we can be rebuilding the infrastructure. Um, is there anything else you would say, Jenny, that, you know, I think a lot of the folks listening are connected to a World Relief Office or are hoping there will be a new World Relief Office nearer to them so that they can connect to those volunteer opportunities once refugees start to arrive in, in more significant numbers. Is there anything else that we can be doing now to, to lay the groundwork for that and to help that, that rebuilding process as we prepare for the program to hopefully um, resume at a more historically normal level? Yeah, so I think um, just reaching out, as you were saying, to one of our local offices to see whether or not there are, vo are volunteer opportunities. I think with COVID and the, the quarantine that many of us have been experiencing, there are opportunities to volunteer virtually. So you can be really anywhere and work with refugees online or uh, other folks that we're serving online. So it's really been an incredible opportunity to be at home, but still um, make meaningful change with refugee and immigrant communities across the country. Um, but the other way that folks can engage is through what we call the PATH, which is a community of um, givers who plug into World Relief and make um, monthly donations to the, the work that we continue to do. And, and it's so important, um, this community, because it really allows World Relief to expand our resources uh, where it's needed to continue to um, resource our local offices with the services that we know refugees and immigrants continue to need, especially during COVID. 
and it really allows our response to be nimble and flexible, especially in light of emerging challenges. So I would encourage people to um, continue to partner with World Relief through volunteering and through giving, because both are really critically important as we enter this new season. Um, and I think just in general praying for World Relief and our staff, we have staff around the world who continue to work in really ext extremely difficult circumstances that are really the front lines of sharing public health information, of making sure people um, have the resources that they need to respond well. And so just praying for our staff, praying for refugees and the people we serve on a daily basis is something that is very, very important. And so all of those things would be just welcome uh, partnerships that we can have with, with just anyone who's listening. Well, thank you so much, Jenny, for giving us this great overview. I know I'm excited for things to look a little bit differently in terms of refugee resettlement. And I know many, many other people around the country are as well. So it's great getting this update and we'll we'll stay in touch with people as we watch the, the program rebuild over the months to come. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Life Across Borders. To learn more about World Relief and get involved, visit www.worldrelief.org. And join us on social media. We are at World Relief on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.